Welcome to our last Tuesday of the month book discussion. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. October's read is The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher. Spoiler alert, we usually end up discussing endings and key plot points. I'm Amy and joining me today is Emily, Family Services Librarian at North Liberty Library. Welcome. Hello everyone, thanks for having me, Amy. Yay, I'm so excited about this book. Me too, I liked it a bunch. I actually just finished it last night. I kind of piecemealed it out a little bit so I could like be very fresh for this discussion. It's a pretty straightforward story, but a lot happens during the course of the story. So our main character goes down to her grandma's house, her grandma who just passed fairly recently, who she didn't have a great relationship with, but did this. She wasn't uh, a nice person in general. Yes. A great relationship with anybody. Yes. So she went down to empty out her grandma's house and in the process kind of discovers a haunting and also some really colorful, cool locals who <laughs> yes. help her out of the situation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a haunting and subsequently a alternate universe, a multiverse. Yes. Multiverse for sure. You bring in that phrase. So it automatically makes me think of superheroes, but just fantasy in general, like we were talking about a bit earlier, how it straddles kind of this horror fantasy genre a little Mm -hmm. bit magical realism yeah so we both loved this book yeah how important did you think the setting was and the idea of place I would say paramount I think that it could have been done in another place however that place would have also needed to be as specifically tailored to this type of event or this type of almost even like opportunity, right? Like this couldn't have happened in Pittsburgh. She could not have, at least in my opinion. I mean, I think like Gilliam de Toro Pan's Labyrinth happens in like the middle of like a metropolitan Spanish city, I think. But in my opinion, like she couldn't have like found a tunnel at a park in Pittsburgh and, you know, walked up to the top of, oh, I can't remember what it was called. It's the top of a hill, but she had an interesting name for it, which I had never heard of before. So she calls the hollows, but that's not what you're thinking of because the no, hollows like, is the space in between the mountains. Yeah. And so this- when she first goes up the tunnel, she's like, I know what this is. It's like a plateau of a large hill, but there's no large hills around here. I almost should go grab the mm-hmm. book and see if I can find it because I don't think she would come out onto this plateau, you know, in Pittsburgh. Yes. And it's also specific because she talks so much about the region itself, right? Uh And the folklore that she ties into it is so regional that it couldn't really have happened anywhere else. Unless, of course, it was taking place in, because where was she connecting to? Wales? Yes. That's where her step-grandfather originally was from and said that he had seen, they called them white people there though, right? The Mm -hmm. white people. And so there is obviously other places in the world that are, there was a different word used in this book, but I am so used to Stephen King. He calls them thinnies. Mm-hmm. It's like places where it's thin between the different worlds. So I thought of it as a thinny, but Anna, she called it something different, a transition place or a transformation place. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of all of that connection, of course, is the throwback to Arthur. Mm-hmm. What's his last name? I'm terrible. 
I just read it in the back of the book too. I'm going to go grab the book really quick. It's just over here. Okay. I was not an astute reader for any of you that read the author's notes. The astute readers will have noticed. I did not notice. <laughs> Arthur Machen's M-A-C-H-E-N. Mm-hmm. Machen's Manuscript, The White People. Yes. Which for anybody who is interested in reading that, it is available for free it's in the public domain public now domain. Yeah. so it's published in part of like an anthology of his though i mean you'll be able to find it but just not um, on its own yeah. yeah so it's part of an anthology of his work i thought that was really cool that she said that she tried to write or they tried to write the excerpt of the green book from memory so it was similar to Cotgrave's trying to write his recollection of the green book from just memory. I thought that was a really interesting writing technique. Yes. And that totally makes sense when you think about it, because otherwise it's going to sound too specific. Like you're going to have too many exact details. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to give too many of the most important details or (laughs) something's just not going to like come across. Oh my gosh. He pulled that out of, you know, memory. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When we know he's having issues. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who wasn't sleeping, who was like being terrorized by his wife. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the wife thing, that was very interesting to me. Yeah. Because so supposedly she repels these creatures, but is also just like a horrible person and wakes him up so he can't sleep. Do you think she had an idea of what was happening? And she was somehow like either a part of it or was like just really terrible and was like I'm gonna make sure you really suffer for like (laughs) (laughs) just for being you yeah yeah that's a really interesting point because I never actually thought about it but now as you're saying it I wish they would have dealt a little bit deeper with that did she become this terrible awful person because she chose to like basically sacrifice her mental well-being to just be like an uber colorful language coming up here like an uber bitch to save her husband she's like i'm naturally repellent to these effigies so i'm just going to continue to do what i'm doing but like ramp it up a notch like i like that idea because i love my grandma and i think grandparents in general are like the only people in your life that really like love you unconditionally parents of course they love you but there's a lot that goes into that relationship but grandparents they love you so hard and like just so well. And so to know that that wasn't, you know, her experience with her grandma is like sad. Yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around somebody who was just pounding on, but then of course there's some, you know, evidence of maybe some mental health issues for her too. So with the hoarding potentially big spoiler for anybody (laughs) who was worried about it, but then you get to the end and the puppet or effigy like builds an effigy out of all of her collected stuff that is supposed to be her and then like voluntarily lays down and essentially dies with this other effigy and you're like oh my gosh is this what's happening if this is really the grandpa's piece of his soul or supposed to be representative of him yeah that's mind-boggling and also as an extent, an additional effigy or puppet to watch over Mouse, right? Because that's what he was created for. Mm-hmm. And so he was making an additional one to watch over her. 
or to attend her. I'll tell you that happens in like the last, what, 20, 25 pages of the book. And I was reading it last night in bed. And as soon as she said something, it's something like they were looking at the effigy out the window. And then she heard something behind her. And my heart was like, (gasps) I had like a visceral roll like jump scare reaction. I was like, no. And then when it was described that it was all the hoarding stuff, I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like this is amazing. Scary as heck and amazing. Yeah. Your heart really jumps into your throat. I definitely felt that at that point. I was like, oh my God, this can't end this way. (laughs) (laughs) I found what she called it in the book. She called it a bald the top of a mountain where no trees could grow. Oh, that's right. So she called it a bald. And I was really interested when I read that the first time. I was like, I've never heard that. We don't live in a very hilly area, so I guess it makes sense. But Well, and that makes me wonder about if that's universal. Now I have to do some like linguistic. <laughs> of the Appalachian uh, Yeah. I'm going to also say, I think another reason why the placement, the location was important because it was, a good way to keep it isolated, not only geographically, but culturally as well. There was a few times where Roxy, Skip, and Tomas had said something, well, if we report it to the police, or if we report it to newspapers, or we let the press know, they're either going to equate it to like dumb hillbillies or drugs. Which is a reality for a lot of people in that they aren't believed because of a social class or other, you know, factors that are going on in their life. And I thought that not ignoring it in the story was nice. It was good to have that representation of like people who aren't believed or forgotten or just kind of shunted aside. Exactly. Cause that could be worked into not only, just the location, but also of her grandmother in general. What was her grandmother's name? I don't even remember. That's terrible. Was it even mentioned? Because I just remember reading Cotgrave like over and over and over and over again. I should have wrote down all the characters' names, but I didn't. I didn't even think about it. And Aunt Kate, I remembered. Yes. But also dad. Like she just called him dad. She never said his name. I think she said it because I think she talked to other people about it. Oh, yeah. But I couldn't tell you what it was. But yeah, so. It's like if a hoarder comes and tells you something or even like a person who has some mental illness or some challenges there, you're absolutely going to just discount it right off the bat of like, well, of course you heard something in your house. It was one of those like, Towers of newspapers falling down, probably. So there are stories out there about like how people use effigies in other ways, but just like it felt like so deeply connected to a culture and people. I really appreciated. Yeah. And made me want to like go in and like explore the folklore of that region and like learn more about that. And I found it really interesting that there were some scholarly resources that I find that talk about how it's viewed as a predominantly white culture 
But the reality is that there was a lot taken in from both Native cultures and Black American or African American cultures in that region. It's interesting because the first thing that comes to mind actually is voodoo dolls, which is like an Afro-Caribbean tradition. So that is really interesting. And how even the language that is used by a lot of folks who live deep within mountains of Appalachia and those regions kind of could be looked at similarly as African-American vernacular English in that it follows its own rules and has its own heritage behind it. Yeah. Which I didn't ever even really nope. consider. Right. Yes. Anyway. I did not either until you just said it. So that's really interesting. That's where my interest in that twisted down into me looking at scholarly articles. Which, <laughs> Fellow listeners, I did not do that. So do not feel bad if you did either. <laughs> I just enjoyed this story on a very basic level. There's lots of ways. And I definitely enjoyed it on a very basic level as well. Just like the whole fantasy elements of it were just really well done. Like, I love that connection that you made. Like you rooted it in actual cultural heritage and representation of different cultures. I think that's awesome. I was happy to hear you talk about it. I just did not go that deep. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of those books that I couldn't put down. Yeah, I agree. Once you got into it, because the beginning, it's a little slow, like, okay, she's digging through the house, she's finding crap, throwing baby doll parts out, and then the (laughs) box goes missing, and then you see it (laughs) reformed at the end of the book. And yeah, the side characters were amazing. Like you've already mentioned Roxy. Foxy. Foxy. Foxy, yes. Those people, including the barista, Enid. That sounds right. They were so well done. You don't see these characters for a very long period of time. They're very short. They're in spurts, but they're very well developed. They have a lot of depth to them. I really felt they were very authentic and it is a key sign of a great writer. There were some other elements of the book. I am not 100% sold ever on breaking that fourth wall where she is like, oh, uh, I got to make sure my vet doesn't read this or... I doubly got to make sure that my vet doesn't read this because for me, that's like, oh, okay, will you live? I'm still going to read to see what happens, but there's not that little element that maybe you got stuck in the other place. And, you know, not that I would wish that for her, but that element is taken away. That surprise is taken away. And that's just not with this author, with any author. I don't like that. I will tolerate it, but I don't really like it. (laughs) So, but in other key elements, I mean, I think, this book was so good and that the depth of those side characters was a really key part of that. I was just going to say that Foxy is just like somebody you definitely want on your team. If you're going into a holler and messing with magical people, (laughs) but yes, puppets making more puppets. And then the whole thing where like they were forcing the girl to have children and then they kill her children. But then to make them into puppets, I was very confused about that because I thought, well, wouldn't they want to make the ones who didn't make it into puppets? And wouldn't the ones who lived, wouldn't they be the masters of the puppets? Because that's what they're looking for ultimately, right? Was more people. Well, but I don't think they wanted masters anymore. 
But it was hard for me to tell. I had a hard time with that connection too, because I was like, well, why wouldn't they then, unless they just didn't survive long enough? Because I know she said that she had lost a couple yeah. children, I think. And maybe those were miscarriages rather than like stillbirths. So there was no actual material. That sounds terrible. Any material to make an effigy out of. Yeah, it is a horror novel. And that's exactly what they were doing is looking for bones and things to use. So Um, speaking of material, when they were talking about when Foxy was shooting them and like stuffing was coming out of them, I just thought that was so cool, but in a weird way. Like, I just thought that was so neat of a visual to give us. There was one point where she shot one of them and there was like, oh, I can't remember what it was now, but something so weird was like coming out, like cardboard boxes or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You have a, pun intended, a very twisted mind. Yeah. Well, and it's just funny too, right? It's like this sudden juxtaposition of these horrifying things that are trying to kill you essentially or take you prisoner and force whatever. But like, (laughs) and then all of a sudden there's stuffing coming out of their bodies. Right. Because yes, there are some effigies that were definitely not funny in the beginning. When you hear about this like twisted deer-like thing, I was like, oh gosh, this is this is creepy. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, I was really wondering, like, when it was at that part and you first got a glimpse or Mouse first got a glimpse of it and she was describing it, I was just, like, racking my brain to try to think of, like, what was making this thing and then to come to find out that it was making itself or other things like it were making it, that was masterful. Yeah, she definitely did well with the humor and the little twists and the art of it all was really good. I agree. I think there were also points that made me laugh where the main character would be like making notes in her head and just had these really weird, like off the cuff, but it was totally natural. Like things like that pop in your head probably throughout the day. Like, okay, this is a really weird reaction I'm having, but it is authentic. Yes. Um, It felt like that. Yes. And I think she said a couple of times, like not even equal to the situation that was happening. She was like, this is what comes into my mind when I am terrified. I think about my tires on my truck or something like that. Like when the burning hoarding effigy fell on her truck and she's like, it touched my truck. I don't even let my boyfriend touch my (laughs) truck, much less drive my truck. That like made me giggle. That was Yeah. I did feel bad for her at the end though, even more so than throughout the book. I felt worse for her at the end than I did at the beginning or in the middle because she said something like, well, now I'm just a mess. Like, I can't sleep. I, I can't concentrate on my work. I can't have relationships. My aunt wants me to go to therapy, but what am I going to do? No one can help me because I can't tell them the truth. And I just felt so terrible for her. Like, nothing good came out of this for her. And it could be argued that nothing good came out of it at all. I mean, they may have freed air quotes, Anna from her torture, but that didn't stop the effigies from still being there and eventually probably trying to kidnap somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of this continual cycle of, you know, it's coming back. She did say something like that when there's too many of them and they like break through and I just was like, oh my God, (laughs) like how I feel about the zombie apocalypse. Like it's fun to read about until... You know, you can actually think about like, what if something in a lab goes wrong someday? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was mostly because the characters were 
we were able to identify with enough or see them as real people enough that it seems like, yep, that could be a thing. It could happen to any of us. Like, I am definitely not going to clean out my grandmother's house over by Makokita. Like, it's on a farm about two miles away from somebody else, but not doing it. No way. So the effigies or the golems or puppets or there's multiple representations, I think, that could be linked together of them throughout different stories, cultures. But what I found unique in this one was the fact that they could be made of literally anything like tire scraps. And like you said, like cardboard boxes, doll parts. Wire hangers. Wire hangers. (laughs) Because I feel like in a lot of other ways, there's very traditional ways of creating the puppets or the golems. Like there's clay. Right. Or there's like straw and cloth. So I didn't know if that had something to do with, again, like connecting it back to the culture of or the perception of people who live in Appalachia. Because I think I remember at one point, I hope I'm not wrong about this. But I feel like at one point I heard something about a translation of like trash people Uh, being uh talked about. Yeah. And so I was wondering if it was reflective of that as well. And then I got into the whole like social commentary of horror. (laughs) Yes. Yes. She made so many trips to the dump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it was one of the conversations that she had with the guy that ran the dump. Well, and also, so social commentary, but a way to link it to like a perpetual cycle that can't Mm -hmm. be broken because if they can make themselves and they can make themselves out of anything, they don't need clay. They can use wire hangers. They don't need straw and cloth or even a lot of times isn't there like if you, and maybe I'm just thinking of like a mainstream definition of like voodoo dolls, you need something from the person that you want to curse, right? So they needed the blood for their masters, but to create themselves, they didn't need anything from anybody. They literally just needed any kind of material that came their way, mm-hmm. which they could pick up from outside someone's house, from a garbage dump, from the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And think about all the trash that we throw away as humans. Uh-huh. That would serve us right for that to come back <laughs> and make themselves into something that could possibly kill us. <laughs> like. Sorry to get on a soapbox, but like we are killing the environment. Oh, yeah. You could even go so far and be like stretching it maybe. But yeah, trash is killing us. It is. Literally, like it's destroying the earth. <laughs> like, And then in turn, it will kill us because right. we don't. So. Have a place to live or have anything to eat. Yeah. Or it could be like outside of our door wanting to get us with its long claws, right? Like you can have a quick death or you can have like a long generational death yeah oh man the horror of horror just (laughs) piles on top of each other yes it does so many layers in this book that's why i love talking about horror books because i mean that's a generalization but i feel like there tends to be lots of layers and i think that you could say that about a lot of different genres but so maybe it's the fantasy elements and things and the you know i might be a little twisted myself so (laughs) i agree i agree I've always loved like things that kind of like scare me a little bit. And I didn't notice until, I don't know, you had said something that made me think about 
the copyright, I guess, for some reason, I thought this was an older book. I had no idea that it was like the last two years recent. Yeah. And I think this is T. Kingfisher's first horror novel. And that's a pen name. I can't remember the author's name. Ursula Vernon. I'm just looking at the copyright, which is why I know that. This is their first horror. I think generally it's fantasy, but you can definitely tell the world building experiences there. So yeah, they have it down for sure. Yeah. And this, it's obvious that this has also been like probably knocking around in their brain for a while. I liked it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you've got a little bit of a twisted sense of humor, I think most people would enjoy this book and don't mind being scared a little bit. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. If you enjoyed The Twisted Ones and are looking for more books to add to your reading list, you might want to try Sorrowland by Rivers Solomon, mostly because I read it recently and it was amazing. It also has some horror aspects to it and definitely straddles that fantasy horror line as well. So if you enjoyed that about this, I think you'll definitely enjoy that by Rivers Solomon. I would say any book by them are good. So I think this is their third. Oh, it could be their fourth. I can't remember. Third or fourth. And every single one of those books has like stuck with me after I've read it. It's like, I feel them. I feel that story for months after. hundred percent. Anything by Chuck Wendig is really good. And then also, as we were talking, I thought about Blake Crouch as well. They both write fantasy, science fiction, um, horror. Blake Crouch is more like a science fiction realistic kind of thing, but there's definitely like elements of multiverse and kind of goes along like horror elements can be part of that. Chuck Wendig is more fantasy and magicalness. So those would be two authors that I would recommend as well. Beautiful. I will be back in November with Sue from Marion Public Library to discuss Signs Preceding the End of the World by Yuri Herrera. Herrera. I'll say that without rolling my R's because I haven't perfected that yet. I hope you'll join us again. Bye. Thank you.